Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. This is your host, Mr. Jeffersonian, and before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. That can be accomplished through having supporting listeners. If you find value in the podcast, there is a link in the show notes page that will enable you to contribute to my work and to help keep the podcast going and also help me to keep it light on advertising. Donations start as low as 99 cents per month, or they can go as high as $9.99 per month. Any amount is appreciated and, again, helps to ensure that the content keeps coming. And thank you in advance to anyone who can help out. In other show-related news, if there's a topic you'd like for me to cover, or if you just want to have a general conversation with me, or if you have questions for me, I can be contacted at mrjeffersonian at outlook.com, and I have also started a MeWe group titled After the Show. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at Mr. Jeffersonian. It is a private group, so we have to be contacts before I can send you the group invite. For those of you who are not familiar with MeWe, being contacts is sort of like being friends on Facebook, or actually it's the same thing, just different names. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode, the Principles of 98, otherwise known as State Interposition or Nullification. But first, let's have some historical backdrop or context. So the French Revolution started in May of 1789, just six years after the conclusion of the American Revolution. The Federalist faction was wary of this revolution from the start, because they feared the radicalness of the French masses and the instability that would result from the overthrow of the French monarchy should the revolution succeed. The Jeffersonians, on the other hand, generally supported the French Revolution, at least at first, as a demonstration of people throwing off the tyrannical oppressions of a monarchic government. Federalists also generally supported trying to repair relations with England to restore profitable trade relations. But the irony of all this is that without... French intervention during the Revolutionary War, there's a pretty strong chance that America could not have prevailed. Now, turning our attention back to the Federalist reaction to this, they were afraid of French immigrants coming in and instigating another democratic uprising in the new American Union. So the Federalists, I'm going to pause here. The Federalists, they they were highly anti-democratic for the, for the most part. Now, that, that would start to change over time as the North started becoming much more populous. But immediately after the revolution, the Federalists were very anti-democratic. They were actually very aristocratic. And they, they feared the power of an unchecked mob to dominate through the polls. And they also feared just mob violence in general after seeing some of the atrocities that happened during the French Revolution. So in response to that, this is under the administration of John Adams, uh, Congress decided to pass the Alien and Sedition Acts. And so there were a series of four laws uh, that constituted these acts. The first was the Alien Enemies Act, which permitted the U.S. government to arrest and deport all male citizens of an enemy nation in the event of war. Then there was the Alien Friends Act, which allowed the president to deport any non-citizen suspected of plotting against the government, and this included during peacetime. The next act was the Naturalization Act, in which Congress increased residency requirements for U.S. citizenship to 14 years, instead of the previous requirement of five years. 
And then perhaps the most controversial law uh, passed as part of these acts was the Sedition Act, which allowed the government to arrest, detain, and deport anyone who published anti-governmental writings or pamphlets. This bill passed with an incredibly thin margin and along party lines. The Hamiltonian Federalists voted in favor, with the Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans opposing, and the final tally was 44 to 41. This caused a major uproar in Congress and the states as this act was a blatant and direct violation of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. And so I'm going to pause here again to just kind of explain some of the differences here. Uh, This is going to be more so in, in modern terms, libertarian versus Jeffersonian. So from a libertarian standpoint, um, the prevailing ideology on this would most likely be that the individual has sacred rights, right? And the individual is the ultimate manifestation of those rights. Now, libertarianism is based on the idea of the non-aggression principle. That's one of its foundational elements, which basically can be boiled down to don't hurt people, don't take their stuff. But it also relies heavily on a concept or theory of negative rights or natural rights, which, which are rights that exist in the absence of anything. So because humans have the ability to speak, you have a natural right to speech, uh, the government doesn't have to do anything to empower you versus, let's say, healthcare. on the other hand. Because you exist does not entitle you to health care. Um, and, I, and I know for some in the audience that may be kind of harsh to hear, but that, that's just a, a way of explaining the differences. For health care, it does require that some, someone proactively or some entity proactively act on behalf of a person for them to receive it versus with a natural right such as speech, self-defense, they can do it themselves, precluding any other interference from the outside. So I bring that up because with libertarians, their outlook on this would most likely be that no level of government should be able to stifle free speech. Now, if you're on private property, completely different matter because subject to the property owner, they can have whatever rules they want. So if you want to go into someone's house and they say, I love Donald Trump and you won't dare criticize him here, Based on common courtesy and respect for property ownership, you would abide by the property owner's rules. But as as far as the government, libertarians would actually adamantly oppose any level of government suppressing free speech. Now, Jeffersonians, on the other hand, they would take a little bit more, I guess, of a nuanced approach. Um, What they would say or what they would back up and look at is, okay, well, we have this U.S. Constitution that has a Bill of Rights. That Bill of Rights only applies to the general government, and then anything else is solely subject to the state constitution. So Virginia, for example, has a stipulation in there that protects free speech. So Virginia's state government, in theory, couldn't violate that without being in violation of the constitution. So Jeffersonians would say it's, it's totally up to the state. If the state constitution doesn't protect it, sure, the state can do whatever they want, um, versus, again, libertarians would say no level of government can do it because it's a, it's a natural right. So that's some of the differences there um, from a libertarian and Jeffersonian point of view. Now, there was opposition to the Alien and Sedition Acts. These acts would present one of the first major tests in the battle for strict adherence to the text of the U.S. Constitution, or a broad interpretation based on a theory of implied powers. After the passage of the acts, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison would propose radical resolutions through the state legislatures of Kentucky and Virginia, expounding the right of states to interpose on behalf of their citizens, 
To quote directly from Madison's Virginia resolutions of 1798, he said, quote, that this assembly doth explicitly and peremptorily declare that it views the powers of the federal government as resulting from the compact to which the states are parties as limited by the plain sense and intention of the instrument constituting the compact as no further valid that they are authorized by the grants enumerated in that compact and that in case of a deliberate palpable and dangerous exercise of other powers not granted by the said compact the states who are parties thereto have the right and are in duty bound to interpose for arresting the progress of the evil and for maintaining within their respective limits the authorities, rights, and liberties appertaining to them. So Madison's using some very strong language there. He's asserting that states are in duty bound. Uh, so they, they have a, a legal and, to an extent, moral obligation to arrest the progress of the general government to protect the freedom of their citizens or, or the citizens within their state. That's radical by today's terms. Uh, back then, that really wouldn't have been seen. I, I, well, to an extent, it was seen as an overreaction by some of the other states at the time. But back then, because most people adhered to the compact theory of the Constitution, this would have made a lot of, of logical sense. And, and even now that I'm reading it, it, makes a ton of sense to me. You have to have power checks power, right? So if I, as an individual, am dissatisfied with something that the general government does, I cannot really do anything about it. Now, if you have a state, especially a large state, because at this time, Virginia was by far the largest state in the Union. So if you have a state, well, you have an organized way to resist. And this is what Madison believed. He, he believed that the state could interpose and act as an intermediary and protect the citizens of Virginia from such a, a horrible overreach. Now, the hopes of Jefferson and Madison were that the other states would see these acts in the same light and pass similar legislation. Unfortunately, this support did not readily materialize. Nathaniel Macon did loudly support these resolutions, but could not inspire the North Carolina legislature to join on. Interestingly, Thomas Jefferson had to write the Kentucky resolutions in secret because he was serving at the time as vice president and under the Sedition Acts, he risked being jailed for his opposition to the government or, or his writing against the government. And his original draft of the resolutions explicitly stated that every state retained the right of nullification. But this language did not make it into the final draft that was adopted for the resolution, excuse me, the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798. Now, the following year, in response to some of the other state criticisms or correspondence regarding the resolutions of 1798, Jefferson would propose another amendment to the Kentucky state legislature in 1799 that would implement this language claiming, quote, that the several states who form that instrument, and here he's talking about the U.S. Constitution, being sovereign and independent, have the unquestionable right to judge of its infraction, and that a nullification by those sovereignties of all unauthorized acts done under color of that instrument is the rightful remedy. So there again, we have one of the founding fathers using incredibly strong language declaring the right of a state to judge the constitutionality of a law when the general government has very clearly overstepped its bounds. Now, how were these resolutions received? Well, initially, several states, uh, primarily in the Northeast, but really throughout the entire Union at that point, 
Disavowed the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, maintaining a position that the right to judge the constitutionality of federal law remained with the federal judiciary, known as the Supreme Court. As time progressed, however, more states began to embrace these principles with the New England states directly citing them in their opposition to Jefferson's Embargo Acts. And this is just another example of how different the sections were from the founding and how the balance of power in the general government was the utmost concern for whichever section found itself in the minority position. Now, John C. Calhoun would go on to become, uh, he was known as the spokesman of the South. And so John C. Calhoun, taking note of all the fallout from the War of 1812, uh, he would really go on later on and manifest a wonderful, wonderful uh, defense of the doctrine of nullification. Now, with the New England states, uh, what's funny about that is uh, in the Disquisition on Government, John C. Calhoun points out that when one party is in power or one section is in power, they will do everything in their power to consolidate that power further and trample the Constitution while the minority section or party will him and haw and scream and talk about all the violations but as soon as the roles switch it, it's always the same cycle whoever's in power all they care about is more power versus who's, whoever is in the minority that's the only time they're going to take a principled stand and so that's interesting because with the embargo acts of 1807 the new england states at that time they were very heavily relying on on shipping specifically with with the british so that's where most of their political economy was was made up. That's where they got most of their revenue. That's that's how they flourished. Well, when the War of eighteen twelve started, and prior to that, with the Embargo Acts, uh, New England bordered on treason. Uh, so, especially during the War of eighteen twelve, New England had stopped sending man and material resources to the war effort, and they had also resumed trading with the enemy. So if you really want to talk about treason, under its truest definition, that, that would be it. The war for Southern independence, you had a set of states leave, and they just want it to be left alone. That's not treason. That, that's asserting the right of self-government. That, that's not treason. But when you're still allegedly on the same team, and you start actively trading with the enemy, and giving them basically aid and comfort, for lack of a better term, then... That, I think that's a pretty strong argument for treason. Now, the, the North at that point did not take up arms against the South, but again, they, they resumed trade with the British, uh, allowing them to not suffer economically, um, which, to be fair to the Northeast, they, they had suffered tremendously economically, whereas Britain, yeah, they, they probably suffered at first, but you know they, they had other trading partners, um, whereas the, the American Northeast at that time, they, they did, but not, not very much. So, all of that to say this, uh, it's an interesting dynamic where throughout American history, when you have one section in power, they will resort to states' rights. Um, again, we've, we've seen it over and over. So, now, we're going to talk about some different examples throughout American history. So, perhaps the most famous, or I guess infamous, depending on how you look at it, example of nullification in the United States was during the nullification crisis of 1832-1833. The Tariff of Abominations had been passed in 1828 and provoked a lot of Southern hostility and outrage because it raised the tariff rate on many imported goods to as high as 
in order to prop up fledgling northern industries. And so, again, we, we have, you cannot look at the war for southern independence in, in a vacuum when you start talking about all this stuff because, it, again, everything kind of ties back into that war, but you cannot look at it in a vacuum. You have to go back. You have to go forward. You have to go up. You have to go down. So when we look at the nullification crisis, you already have southern hostility towards it because, again, the general government was being used to prop up northern manufacturing, whereas the south was still very much so primarily an, ag- an agricultural economy. And so with these protective tariffs, the south felt that it was not fair at all that they were paying the bulk of these and especially because not very much of the money was being spent in the South. You had a lot of what they would call federally funded internal improvements going on in the North. And at that time, what they called the West. So places, um, Ohio would be an example, uh, maybe Michigan. And so you had federally funded, excuse me, federally funded internal improvements that were being paid for primarily by the South because they, as the exporting section, also had a lot of imports. And I didn't explain that very well last episode, but the South would export a lot of food, uh, just agricultural products in general. Later on, especially throughout the 1800s, the mid-1800s, you would get into cotton. But they would also import a lot of goods from Europe because at the time, Europe's manufacturing was just much, much more efficient than Northern manufacturing. So Northerners could not compete. Uh, just, just from a price standpoint, Northern manufacturers could not compete. And so what would happen is you would have people like Alexander Hamilton, uh, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster. You would have that faction, the Federalists or the Hamiltonians. They would come along and say, we need to protect our Northern industry or we need to protect our domestic industry because if we get too reliant on the British, what happens if they cut us off? What happens if we go back to war? so on and so forth. And, and I think that is a, a fair point, but the taxes should be spread out proportionately and not basically rating one section to pay for the other. So anyway, back to the nullification crisis. After the tariff had been in place for about a year, John C. Calhoun published a document. It was the South Carolina Exposition and Grievances. And they basically spelled out their economic reasons for not being very happy with the current situation. Now, fast forward uh, to 1832. So at this point, the tariff has been in place for four years. South Carolina outright nullifies the tariff. And they tell the Andrew Jackson administration that they are not going to enforce it and that they will not be collecting revenue for the government. Now, Andrew Jackson responded in kind by reasserting his belief of the federal supremacy And Jackson even went as far as to threaten military action and occupation in order for the general government to collect this pound of flesh from the ports of South Carolina. In pursuit of this goal, Congress, with Jackson's full approval and urging, passed the force bill of 1833, which authorized a federal army to invade South Carolina. And there was a lot of uproar to this. Behind closed doors, uh, Virginia's governor at the time actually sent... um, correspondence to the South Carolina state government assuring them that Virginia would not be complicit in allowing federal troops to march on her soil to coerce a, a state. And so there was there was a lot of uproar about this. This was a big deal. This is one of the first and, and most intense times, or not really the first, but one of the most intense times where you have the question of, is the state, or excuse me, is the union 
a voluntary union of states or is it a coercive union held together at the end of a bayonet or at the end of a gun? And so Virginia was already saying at that point, we, we will not comply with this. We will not allow you to march through here. Again, granted, that was, that was more so going, home, going on behind closed doors. But what happened from here is uh, cooler heads did end up prevailing. There was a meeting, and John C. Calhoun basically helped kind of negotiate and get the tariff rate lowered. Uh, now, it would be a gradual reduction over a period of 10 years. South Carolina did accept this, and they decided to go ahead and reinstate the tariff. But to drive the underlying point of nullification home, South Carolina then nullified the force bill. Once again, showing that states have the right to judge the constitutionality themselves. You, you cannot solely rely on a federal court to determine the limits of federal power. That is the overall arching theme. That's, that's the major takeaway is why nullification? Why use it? Well, it's because you have to have a way to check the power of the center. If you don't, then the center is going to consolidate more and more and more, and, and you're going to be left without any recourse. The historical significance of this cannot be understated, as the southern states carried many of the same economic grievances in 1860 when the first wave of secession happened. And remember, the nullification crisis happened 28 years before the first shots were fired in the war for southern independence. So again, we have historical grievances here. We have historical sectional differences, and it's not all about the institution of slavery. Now, throughout the 1850s, states such as Vermont and Wisconsin nullified the Fugitive Slave Acts, refusing to allow state resources or manpower to be used in capturing runaway slaves to send back south. So a very positive use of the power of nullification, with these northern states basically saying, well, yeah, while the Fugitive Slave Acts are, you know, in the Constitution, and, and that actually was in the Constitution, but... They refuse to allow their state resources to be used. So what, what does that mean? So they would say, okay, uh, federal government, if you want to send in federal marshals, federal bounty hunters, what, uh, privateers, whatever the case may be, go ahead, send them in. But you will not, we will not allow any of our state manpower to be conscripted for this, and we won't allow you to use our state jails or any of that. So a very positive use of the nullification power. Another example is that starting in 2010, Colorado and several other states took an incredibly public stand in nullifying federal prohibitions on the sale and consumption of marijuana. That's That, I think, has overall been a good thing. You've got a lot of states who have done that now, and they've had very positive results. It opens up a new avenue of, of uh, excuse me, it opens up a new path of tax revenue for the state, but it also decriminalizes a plant and it doesn't ruin people's lives just for, again, smoke, smoking a leaf. So that, that's a good thing. Now, this very year in 2021, Missouri passed state legislation nullifying all federal gun control laws. And then Texas Governor Greg Abbott has also recently very boldly reasserted state supremacy and sovereignty under the 10th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and declared all undelegated powers to the general government as null and void. I am curious to see if Texas will take any real steps in nullifying the thousands of assumed powers, but I, I, unfortunately I don't think they will. Now, some additional nullification I'd personally like to see is one, the Social Security payroll tax, and the reason behind that is 
that was passed in an unconstitutional manner, um, and it's it's a coercive Ponzi scheme, and it, it, it like the name suggests, it's a tax. The money does not belong to the recipients; it belongs to the government to to redistribute as they see fit, or if they ever decide it not to, they have the authority to do that too. So I would like to see the Social Security payroll tax uh, nullified at the state level. Texas, Colorado, California, any state, just any state, come out and do it. Another thing I'd like to see nullified would be the Affordable Care Act. Uh, That was all but determined to be unconstitutional. And so I would, again, like to see states nullify that and say we refuse to participate in this and it would die on the vine. The next thing would be all current offensive military actions with the added requirement to bring troops home from the nullifying states. So what that means is let's say if Delaware decides to say, you know what, the wars that we've been carrying on the last 20 years, they were never officially declared. They are illegal. We hereby nullify it. And I would like to see them tack onto that a requirement for all troops whose home of record is Delaware come back home. We're not supporting this anymore. And then lastly, I would also like to see the federal income tax be nullified since the Constitution does not give the general government the power of direct taxation on the people of the states. And so from here, um, I'm going to give you guys some recommended reading material. First and foremost is the book Nullification by Tom Woods. Uh, That's where I got a lot of information for this episode, and that is just an incredible resource on the natural remedy or the rightful remedy of states to exercise nullification. And that book, again, is by Tom Woods. The next book would be The Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution by Brian McClanahan. Uh, Also, another one by McClanahan would be Non-Presidents Who Screwed Up America. And then Thomas Jefferson, Revolutionary by Kevin Gutzman, and The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution, also by Kevin Gutzman. So those books, uh, I've read all of those, and that that really just blew me away and opened my eyes to all the different ways that states can fight back against the overburdening and oppressive general government. So I would recommend to y'all highly, please read those at your leisure. Uh, Most of them can be found on Apple Books, Kindle, or if you prefer a physical copy, you can get them on Amazon. So just read those whenever you have a chance. And now in conclusion, I know that we've covered an awful lot of ground today, and I do want to thank everyone who tuned in and made it to the end. Nullification historically was seen as a way to save the Union by allowing the abuses of the general government to be checked by either major section, as opposed to one section being able to dominate the other. And remember, if you found value in this podcast, or if you find value in this podcast, please use the donation link in the show notes page to become a supporting listener. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll talk to y'all next time.